Welcome to a dialogue on accountability in the digital age. A dialogue with representatives of a global, multi-stakeholder community. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host, uh, Musa Inua, and today I am delighted and privileged to have a conversation with Mr. Oliver. Thank you so much, Oliver, for joining us on Dialogue. Um, an initiative by uh, um, Institute for Accountability in the Digital Age, where we have a conversation on accountability in the digital age. Um, before I, I, I come to you, Mr. Oliver, I just want to have um, a brief um, about yourself and possibly uh, maybe you can help us better with the narrative as I, I end the conversation. So Mr. Oliver is a convener for fixed um, uh, convener of uh, Fix the Country Movement in Ghana and also governance advisor with significant law and policy and expertise in various African countries in the United States, within the United States uh, or United Nations systems. And he has um, worked as a diplomat in the Foreign Affairs Service of Ghana and a former legal and uh, policy officer of the president in Ghana as well. So Mr. Oliver is currently um, studying his um, doctorate degree from Harvard School of Law. And uh, what else can you tell us, Mr. Oliver? <laughs> Sometimes I avoid formal introductions because at the end of the day, you don't even recognize yourself anymore. But it's been an experience, been an exciting experience all across board. And I'm happy to have the conversation with you. And if you don't call me Oliver, I'll start calling you for an informal and relaxed discussion. So Oliver is just fine. Yes. Um, so Oliver Bakavomo, sorry about that. I should have that for my introduction. Yeah. So um, Mr. Oliver, please tell us um, about Fix the Country movement in Ghana. What is it about? Thank you. Um, sometime uh, last year, this is around April, uh, there was a young youth movement that sort of spontaneously erupted on social media, in particular Twitter, uh, where young Ghanaians were talking about socioeconomic problems in the country, but also questions of governance, right, and, and the setup of power and how power interacts with them as citizens in a democracy. And so we're demanding for real changes and real transformative changes the ways in which they've lived their lives as in the Ghanaian democracy. And it all came together in the handy hashtag, fix the country. So people will basically tweet about some of the problems that we're facing in the country and then add the hashtag, fix the country. And within a period of you know three, three to five days, there were more than 12 million tweets of people who were using the hashtag, fix the country. So it needed a real conversation you know, and individuals like myself became interested in, in the staying power of this young interest in improving Ghanaian democracy in a particular way. So we said, well, why not we organize this, right? Like it's, it's so that this doesn't just dissipate after a few few days, but it's, real, it's really translated into a, a, a moment, uh, into, into an institution or an organized formation of some sort that, that can stay and, and can continue to push Ghanaian politics in a particular way or direction. And so the idea came that, well, now we've mobilized or we're having these conversations mainly in the virtual space or in the digital space and we're making these interconnections. 
What about if we said we wanted to move the conversation and then have a street level protest, particularly because the divide between a digital space in Ghana and, 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 and then offline communities is very much one of the class issues. Not everybody has access to mobile phone technology. Not everybody has the ability to connect and, and, and participate in you know, uh, national global discussions. And a lot of that activity tends to be very much focused in the, in the Accra metropolis, which is the capital. So our way, in a way, we wanted to democratize the conversation and kind of bring a lot more young people on board and into the process. And so, you know, I then wrote a letter to the Ghana police service that we wanted to, to do a demonstration, you know, and the, the system and the elites kind of lost their minds. Uh, some of them were talking about, you know, young people were mobilizing to overthrow the government. Some people were talking about terrorists had overtaken, fixed the country, all kinds of things. We showed the real apprehension of how the, the, the system was reacting to face the country. And from then on, we've kind of just continued to organize and done several protests across the country, drawn so many people onto the streets of Ghana, all with the aim of pressuring, pressuring our, our politics in a particular direction and ensuring that you know, there are real dividends to how we can hold elected officials accountable. That's in, in many ways sums up the country for me. Thank you so much. Um, so, um... This is very fascinating, of course, um, bringing more than um, 50,000 people on the streets to gather to protest um, on movements that has to do with um, um, fighting for right and justice. This is very fascinating to, to, to listen. Um, what is of your view on accountability in the digital age in relations of your work um, that, that you, you harness to do on, on this? You know, sometime in, in 2020, when the pandemic hit, um, I was still working at the UN at the time. And a friend of mine and I got into conversations about one of the, one of the things we are seeing happening with the COVID-19 pandemic is that we are seeing the ways in which we as citizens interact with democratic institutions change. The ways in which we can mobilize to hold institutions to account is all moving. We have to sort of adapt to this virtualization of live lives and how we interact with each other. And so I was in New York, I was stuck in New Jersey at the time in a small apartment because I'd flown in into the country and they led to quarantine. And he was in Ghana and kind of decided that we're going to create a, a series of dialogue called Law in Crisis. And it was a play on both how law would function in a time of crisis, but that also the pandemic was also putting law and legal institutions in a state of crisis itself. And so we, we organized and convened this conversation, which was the first in Ghana, where we started this Zoom ideas and inviting different people to speak right, while everybody was in quarantine. And the numbers of people we saw connecting to these Zoom conversations was the entire, essentially everybody who mattered in Ghana was on board. You see, you see judges, you see politicians, the people, all kinds of stuff, right? And the conversations were teasing in these dialogues were questions about how do we hold government accountable using the tools of the digital space, using the ways in which our lives were transforming and changing before their, our eyes. And in a way, Fix the Country is an extension of that conversation. Because mind you, this is something that started 
entirely in the digital space, where young people were having these conversations in the digital space. 90% of them are mobilization and ways in which we spread our message relies on internet connectivity and people community within social media bubbles and things like that, you know? And in that scope and, and in that space for being able to organize and ask questions of government, one, first of all, the mobile technology has been a catalyst for us to be able to have this conversation and, and just connect as activists. But also I'll give you an example, like the very first Free the Country demonstration we did in August 4, 2021, a lot of us organizing this were living in different parts of the world and even different parts of the country in Ghana. So many of us in, 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 the, in the aim to protect our identity because we didn't know who we were interacting with, we made a decision that people could organize under a nickname. And we used technology like we're using Telegram, which allowed you not to show your phone number, but you just put a nickname there. And so many people were doing and planning and going back and forth with apart from those who are started now to go public and give interviews like myself, of all the other 100 and something people we were mobilizing with, we did not know each other physically. In fact, it was only at a demonstration that somebody would come and tap me and say, oh, I am unscripted poet. And that's all like the name I knew them by, right? So that gives you the ways in which it allowed us to be able to mobilize and find ourselves, but also make a project of, you know, uh, holding government to account directly at play. Uh, another ways in which we are mobilizing digital tools, for instance, is one of the big things to face the country is our use of right to information requests. So, you know, they say democracy dies in darkness. And one of the things which Ghanaian institutions have been very apprehensive for of is access to information. And we have just kind of just mobilized the laws to be able to directly put in requests for, for right to information requests. And a lot of that comes from just crowdsourcing freedom right information requests. What do you want to know about your government? Kind of people suggest ideas, and then we shoot it off via email or something to the institution. And you can see this low cost mechanisms of, of driving institutional accountability by bringing out information and people can engage with and drive public opinion and discussions around whether or not key sectors or key public institutions are performing, shows you the ways in which you know the digital interacts with. Thank you so much, Oliver. Before um, our conversation cut off, sorry, apologies for that. Um, I was going to ask um, your motivation for um, doing all this in Ghana. We know the sub-region currently is characterized with so much um, that's in your movement that you term some to be um, corruption allegations and um, security issues and so forth. Can you give us um, a brief insight in, into this? So, you know, the, the, the kind of platform we have because it's focused on democratic accountability and kind of mobilizing all the tools that we can as a young people without resources, relying on, you know, crowdfunding uh, for the most part to be able to do this. There's still a large range of issues that we can talk about and deal with. But one of the things we wanted to set for ourselves from the very beginning is that for our activism to have the broadest or the biggest echo or biggest impact, we have to think about sustainability measures. 
how do you sustain these things and allow, create the space for initiatives like ours to blossom? And so we said we're going to, what we are trying to do as an objective is to create a protest culture in Ghana. Now, mind you, at the time we started our activism, um, there was a survey done by the Afrobarometer, which is sponsored by the African Union, that found that 86% of Ghanaians say they've never been to a demonstration in their lives and that they were never going to go for one, right? So this is what we are dealing with. It's a country that has historically been apprehensive of the freedom of exercising the right of freedom of assembly. And some of this goes to, to our, the military dictatorships or military regimes that Ghana has known because military re regimes have a propensity to using military curfews uh, to stop you know, people from mobilizing and massing up and people coming onto the streets to discourage those things as much as possible. And a lot of those things have stayed with us as a people. And those tools that were available in the past continue to be used to this day, even in a democracy. So our objective then was that, first of all, we have to, we have to tackle and target the framework or the restrictive framework around protests. And so we've been to the Supreme Court, for instance, manifest the country, when we tried to do a demonstration, the government obtained a perpetual injunction on fix the country from ever protesting. And we challenged this all the way to the Supreme Court to get it overturned, you know, and they went back to the high court and we won again in the high court to vindicating the right to protest. Then, then one of the other thing we're doing is that we are currently sponsoring a bill to reform the public order act, which governs demonstrations and, and protests in Ghana which is supposed to be laid in parliament by a private member of parliament to make it more you know, liberal and more also open to allowing people to freely demonstrate. For instance, in Ghana, you, it is very difficult. You have to notify the police five days in advance of any demonstration and you have to do it uh, not electronically. There's no option like that. You have to go to the offices and deposit a, a paper of some sort, right? And, and we're trying to change all of this to make it just go by a button online and inform the police of a demonstration tomorrow, something like that, right? Like in other democracies, as long as it doesn't involve a, a procession and it's only picketing, you just notify the police and that's it. There's no other requirement. You can do that easily. So we want to be able to change even the laws around the freedom of assembly. So a lot of people can do that. The other thing as well, which we've taken on, on board as one of our key platforms, is that there's a lot of violence that the state dispenses around demonstrations. And so for people connected with demonstrations in Ghana, and this is what the fear around demonstrations is that we've seen the military go onto the streets and shoot young people and kill the young people just by exercising the right to protest. And so we have taken questions of police and military violence and brutality, all these extrajudicial killings as a big platform that we are championing and campaigning for and against, for, for demanding accountability for, to families of victims and for victims who have been killed, including the country activists who have, had, who have died in this interaction. And one of the things we've done is have a legal team that is pushing for, for compensation, for justice, for victims caught up in these things. And I suppose our thinking is that unless we can create a safe environment for, for, for demonstration and protest, people are not going to be able to use those mechanisms. But also in addition to that, even when the state 
blocks people from getting onto the street, we have to see the virtual space as a mechanism for holding government to account. And so when the government for months was taking a perpetual injunction against us and to avoid us from doing a demonstration, we did the first ever virtual protest in Ghana, which drew hundred thousands of people. With people doing a demonstration, people would show, stand by their communities and hold up placards and take pictures of themselves and put it up on social media. We did a pots and pans demonstration, which at a, a particular time, people would bank pots and pans from their homes and you know, record themselves on social media. Like these were soft tools that were using digital technologies to be able to, to enhance the you know, conversations about holding the government or state institution to account within the you know, general set of issues we have to deal with. Thank you. Um, this is just a follow-up question as we speak about accountability and democracy. So um, my question um, is, uh, I think this has been something that I always want to ask you, even if I meet you in person. You always speak about democratic reforms, um, not only in Ghana, but generally in, in the African sub-region. I've heard you on many platforms uh, um, always discussing about um, this subject. What needs to be changed in Ghana? What needs to be changed in Africa um, with accountability and this process you, you are into now? So uh, as far as I'm concerned, I, I think that, you know, you cannot build a democracy without Democrats. And a lot of you know African leadership and the society at large haven't imbibed the democratic ethos or bought into the idea of what it means to be truly accountable for one's actions when you have power. And the logic of power in, in, in so many African societies is that power doesn't account. And to demand for accountability from leadership or persons in political authority is to be impolite. And so we have to break the shyness away around demanding for, 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 for our due and for answers. And that process entails both institutional and legislative reforms, but also cultural revolution in a sense, a cultural change. Now, you have to be mindful that a lot of the times, attitudes or attitudes that are discouraging of democratic accountability have been captured in lawmaking. And so there are so many legal rules and laws on the books in Ghana and North African countries, which deliberately discount or discourage democratic accountability. And in addition to that, even when they are so framed in very flowery language, right? Uh, they are oftentimes, how should I put it? Because they are enforced, they're supposed to be enforced by persons who are not Democrats at heart. It, it means that they take these very rules and they turn it on its head. And so they, 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 it goes, the law goes to a process where it is intended for one thing, but it gets corrupted because the people who are supposed to apply it right, do not even believe in that democratic ideal. So yeah, so there's a, there's a mechanism of direct law enforcement. And in Ghana, for instance, the country has been talking about a new constitution for a new generation because we have a constitutional framework which people have described that creates an imperial precedent that the president can do everything, including, you know, change a man to a woman. Like, 
The, the, the powers of the presidency is so enormous. There's no accountability. There's immunity for the presidency that it is very difficult to hold an institution like that to account. And that's, that's a, that's a di direct thing that we need to be able to reform. Because connected with that, you have institutions which are supposed to act as institutions of check and balance, like parliament, like the judiciary, all becoming very subservient to the executive. And so that there is a, a framework of you know, elite politicians who are not accountable to the people and there's a gap between what the people can do to hold them to account within the current legislative framework. But then there's also the cultural element of individuals just feeling like there's nothing we can do to change anything. There's no role we can play. We don't even know what to do. And so there's an element of political education that must be done. And, and I think that is a, yeah, it's a combination of the two things that will be able to move society forward. Now, let me add a little point before you come in. One of the tra tragedies of, of democratic experience in Ghana and Africa generally is that we are in the face of an, you know, a, a state institutional framework that is, not, that is very discouraging of accountability. You are seeing civil society try to mobilize. But the vast majority of civil society initiatives, including Faith the Country, do not receive any formal support. And a lot of times we are trying to raise funding, which is based on the benevolence of Western taxpayers. So there's not, there's not a process whereby Ghanaians themselves or Africans are paying for their own civil society, are encouraging of their own civil society. And it means that the, the tools and the mechanisms by which civil society in these countries can use to challenge power are very, very limited, right? Uh, and that's and that's some of the issues we have to deal with to improve democracy. Yes. Um. So, um, on global perspective, on also um, the media landscape in Ghana, I know you have received so many um, criticisms um, from the media side somehow. And if you can run us through the global perspective of free speech. Um, is there a Ghana version or African version um, with your experience in the United Nations systems, with your experience in other continents? What can you say um, about the aggregator between Ghana um, and Africa? So one of the things generally, and I think the societies are different in the ways in which they are tolerant of speech and what mechanisms they put in place to protect speech. There are certain societies, for instance, in the US, where the First Amendment of the right to speech, um, it's so very much protected in ways in which other societies do not have the same, same kind of. Okay, sorry, Oliver, go on, please. So the, the different kinds of societies respond differently to the conversations around speech and how to protect speech and the value that is placed on speech. So you have societies like, like the US, for instance, where law is very, very protective of speech, that there are very, very few restrictions that exist legally to, to stop speech in, in many ways. And there are societies where, you know, there are certain things you're not allowed to say and it's, the scope and it's always on a spectrum, right? Uh, in, in different democracies, how to deal with it. Now, in, in Africa, for instance, and Ghana, for instance, first of all, you have to think speech about speech contextually, where the mechanisms of propagation of speech 
which is the media and all of that. 98% of media in Ghana is owned by people within the political class, either connected to the opposition party or persons in government. Those are the people who are obtaining licenses. So there's a curating of what voices are leveraged and who gets to be heard in this conversation. And what is deemed kosher, uh, to, to use a Jewish expression, it's, it's all tied into what the elite system wants to preserve about what can be spoken about and what not. Immediately as well, because the media space is overwhelmingly owned and run by political actors and persons with political exposure, it means that speech that is disruptive of the status quo, that is not supportive of it and invites young people to demand different, is speech that must be characterized as dangerous speech. It is viewed there as undesirable speech. And that's kind of the context of the way the country activism is largely covered by persons in, in the space. So that even when you have certain media which, is al which are aligned to the opposition and, and party, they are apprehensive of the country because our messaging is not that this government is bad, but the setup of our democracy under, undermines you know, personal liberty, undermines freedom for individuals generally. And that the two main political parties in Ghana are participative in the system. And so when, that, when it touches then, you know, that way, obviously the ways in which your speech is characterized is not given a lot of, uh, how do I say, it's not viewed favorably. So it's not surprising. But also one of the things it does, just to end on the point, that it creates a context for violent repression of your speech. So you've seen that the state has reacted very, reacts very, very violently to fix the country, right? We put up a billboard to tell people, join fix the country, the state pulls down the billboard, right? People in the LGBT community pull up the billboard and say, love everybody equally. Then the state, we have members of parliament going behind the billboard and say, pull this down now. And the Inspector General of Police organizes the police to pull down the billboard. So freedom of expression and speech is very, very controlled as to what the status quo is comfortable about. And you're seeing the country being deemed as one of the undesirables because we are deliberately attacking the, the kind of policies that the, the power structure has created. So um, thank you so much um, for this um, um, illustrations. Um, I tend to also note um, this. What do you think is the biggest threat for accountability today, especially in a developing country like Ghana? I mean, I, I think that the path to, I can tell you what the path to increasing accountability is, which is active citizenship. I think one of the gambles our you know, legal and constitutional framework makes made was that institutions are supposed to check governments uh, or the executive to be able to open up the space. But politicians quickly realize that they can capture those institutions. And once they do that, fill them with appointees of their own and whatever, those persons become the largest mouthpiece of the government, right? I'll give you an example. When, when, when I was arrested and kept in jail without, without any charges for 35 days, I came out of the police cells and said, the police do not feed inmates in those cells. And I saw people, many people who were starving in circumstances around me. And that a lot of people were donating, bringing food to me, and I was giving those food out to people to be able to eat in these overcrowded cells. You know, a cell designed for four people, you know, 35 people living in it. And all of them, a lot of them, none of them were being fed by the police. And so when, we, when I came out, I organized donations to go to, get to them. The Minister of National Security intervenes, the police rejects our donation, 
And then the police service issues a statement claiming that I am lying and in fact defeat inmates. And then you go on and file a right information request that, okay, if you do feed him, what's the budget and how, when was it approved? And then they refuse to respond. The re reflex by which a police institution can issue a statement and lie in order so that the government doesn't look bad. It's one of the things that we are talking about of, of capture of these institutions that they become used as mouthpieces of the government and, and, and the establishment. So that process, the only way we can get out of that is if citizens and active citizens, there's a critical mass of people who are making these demands, who are pressing for them, and it's a sustained action of demanding this, this question, using a variety of tools. And especially because young people and people across board can mobilize differently and do not have the same means as organized institutions, the ability to use digital tools, you know, to, to organize the signing of a petition, to organize like we are doing a 1 million petition for a new constitution project. These things are directly reinforce the culture of accountability. But there also has to be a part that the state has to play, which is that when a lot of people are seeing the kind of attack, you know, that people, persons like myself who are speaking up are receiving, that people journalists have been killed in Ghana, attacks journalists are receiving and things like that, it disincentivizes citizens from acting because they become more afraid then of their voices and of, of even doing anything. And so the incentive or the enabling environment for active citizenship doesn't exist and we have to actively create that. Thank you, Oliver. So um, um, in, in this year contest, um, I also want us to shift the conversation more into accountability, especially in digital age. With um, 21st century now, what do you think is the threat for accountability now? I think that when you have societies like ours, where the younger population is becoming, is becoming more embraceable of digital innovations and digital tools of mobilizing and working, but that the apparatus of the state itself is stuck in a framework where you have to bring, a, you have to sit in traffic and come to the office and bring a paper and file a paper. You have to chase up that paper and you have to go through several bureaucratic processes before anything is processed. It creates a disconnect between what you know young people are willing to do and what the apparatus of the state is, is willing to accommodate. You have an institution or a situation, real threats of where, you know, still the government finds it find it very easy to like what's happening in, in, in Nigeria when Nigerian young Nigerians use Twitter to mobilize the NSAS movement. They they took Twitter offline in Nigeria, right? Uh, and, and, and demanded that Twitter incorporate in Nigeria or move out and never be allowed in Nigeria. You have situations in Ghana where the government then decides to tap tax communications and digit, the cost of connecting online. It's the place taxes that, and that kind of dissuades and, you know, can influence the ability to use these tools to be able to go online and mobilize. You have situations in Ghana now, for instance, with the electronic transactions levy, where it is hitting organizations like Fix the Country, which rely exclusively on mobile money donations from people to be able to do our work, that because of an introduction of a, an oppressive tax in this space, you see donations tipping down to civic initiatives like ours, where people are unwilling to contribute because of the trying to avoid these taxes. 
So these are some of the real costs that we have to find. But this is also coupled with general infrastructural issues, like you know, lack of even connectivity in so many places. There's also just a general refusal to take anything digital serious. Even though there are laws in place, and I'll give you an example. When we're trying to organize one demonstration in Ghana, we decided that we're going to send a notice to the police electronically. We emailed it to them. They didn't open it and check it. Then we started sending it by via WhatsApp to high persons within the police hierarchy. And when they receive it, they tell us that this is not a formal notice. You have to come to our office and, and present it. And then we would pick up the electronic transactions law in Ghana and says, the law says anything submitted electronically applies as much as as valid as anything handed out in, in person. And institutions refuses to, to, to do anything with it, right? But also one of the things that we have decided to use it around is that it allows us to be able to even hold those institutions account. So I'll give you an example. The Ghana Police Service refuses to acknowledge receipt of any letter given to them. But when we decide then to send it via email to them, we create a digital record of receipt. So that in any situation, we can then say that, look, we actually did contact your institution and made this request to you and you refused to answer. So that allows us then to be able to not be caught up in a situation where it's our word against the, the police establishment and the courts and the institutions of justice tend to believe those institutions rather than citizens. You know, so it allows us to subvert that. So um, in this context, where would you say Ghana is, in your opinion, um, on accountability in the digital age? Where can we position Ghana, maybe in Africa? So I, I mean, I think that in terms of how, there has to be a dichotomy we have to establish between how the state, whether the state has created an enabling environment for digital accountability to be to exist and to operate, operationalize, okay? 85% uh, of government institutions are offline. They have no online presence and it's very difficult to even assess information on them. It doesn't enhance and promote digital accountability. So there's no real project in place to create an open society virtually. There's, there's, no, there's no project like that in place. And that's a real thing that you have to, to deal with. And I, because I am not very familiar to the extent of how other African societies are doing this, except maybe South Africa, it is very difficult to compare and contrast Ghana in relation to them. I can say that I can look at the space initiative, the space in Ghana, and I don't see, I don't see that activity happening. And that anything that happens and the use of digital technology in this space is either accidental or the second option, which I'm going to talk about, is the citizens themselves trying to innovate, trying to find mechanisms to hold the government account, like mobilizing online, for instance. Like for instance, Face the Country, for instance, now has created a new website, rightinformationghana.org, which is going to go live, which is where we are going to be keeping as an open source for all right to information requests and information we gather from the government to put it up online for people to be able to assess. So, and we have incorporated another body called Democracy Hub, which job, is to create different kinds of templates. How do you demand a town hall meeting at your local assembly? How do you uh, request, do notify the police of a demonstration? How do you petition parliament? How do you petition for the, for the impeachment of a, constitution, a constitutional office holder? All these you know, tools we are developing and putting online into a digital database for people to be able to assess.
So that's one way. And then finally, as a final point, one of the things that we as a country kind of had to deal with was that digital surveillance by the state. So like, for instance, now we know, I know, for instance, that the government has gone to use anti-terrorism laws to be listening to my phone calls and, and assessing my electronic you know, activity, right? And we know this because somebody sympathetic in the court system alerted us to us that the order had been obtained by the government. Now, how do we then innovate digitally to respond to that growing threat? And even the fact that the government went to obtain Pegasus from Israel to monitor the phones of activists, including Fix the Country, is to shift to different platforms like Signal. And that's how we do a lot of our organizing and talking to people, right? So we also have to adapt in the face of a, of a state institution that is willing to use illegal surveillance to disrupt the work of activists and also to, to shield itself from being held into account. Because we have to always try to stay ahead of it. Thank way. you so much. We've been having conversation with Mr. Oliver Vaca Vomo, soon to be doctor. Um, and thank you so much um, for um, joining us to discuss about accountability in the digital age. Um, live from um, here, we are here with uh, uh, Mr. Fritz um, from Institute for Accountability in the Digital Age, who is the executive director. And Mr. Oliver, um, this happened to be my last question, but um, I want to attempt to ask you this um, before we, we, we just sign off. Um, what do you think an institute like Institute for Accountability in the Digital Age um, role in helping um, accountability in the digital age becomes more efficient to um, rural communities, urban communities around the world. And maybe just for your information also, we'll be having a conversation on internet governance, which um, we may have the privilege to have you on board, hopefully. Um, this is event going to be hosted by the United Nations in uh, in each other. so possibly we we'll get in touch and have a conversation on that as well. And we are having other couple of programs, which we'll be delighted to also have you. But just your opinion, um, what do you think Institute for Accountability in Digital Age should focus, um, for example, Ghana, in also partnering with you? Fritz, are you here? Maybe you can also give us um, a shot on, on this. <laughs> Hello, Ms. Hello, Fritz. Yes. Okay, Oliver. So, can you give us your, yes, uh, let's say, a brief lines? Maybe then we, we can. Yes. Well, let me just give three quick, quick brief points. One as an example. The first one is an example. When face the country, when I came out of jail, we're thinking about ways in which we can better insulate our communication and how we use our tools to work. Because primarily our activists were all over the country and across the world. We, we use these digital tools to collaborate, collaborative work equipment and things like that. We use, you know, citizen journalists, people going in communities and going live on social media as citizen journalists to be able to report a problem within a community to generate discussions. These are kind of the tools we're using. Now, when, we need, when I came out then with now concerned about illegal surveillance, we realized that in the entire space in, in the country, there was no institution that provided support to activists in terms of checking, you know, scanning their phones for, for malware and things like that. It was an organization based in, in France, tech, tech for Press, that was able to get in and kind of scan the phones of the country activists 
providers training on digital security and things like that. It is important that we are protective of activists in the various countries. In the various countries. Okay. Um, thank you so much. And, and go ahead. Sorry, before you. Um, no, so I was saying that we have to create mechanisms of of protecting activists in the various countries to be able to allow them the space to be able to do the work. The role that you know the institute in the Hague, and I love the Hague. I used to live in the Hague. Can do across board is that. Yes, I worked in the Hague. I worked in the International Court of Justice for a while. Um, is that it has to be able to think of itself as creating an enabling environment. And an enabling environment also considers what kind of tools and resources can we make available to activists in order to develop and emerging economies and countries for them to be able to use to do the work there, because we can't do the work on their behalf. What kind of resources, what kind of networks and community for information sharing, learning experience sharing. How do we bring these people together for them to be able to find networks and connections among themselves to support each other globally? Can we facilitate, be a facilitator of those network creation uh, across the across board would be useful. But also importantly, also questions of exposure to activists generally, you know, can also protect lives of, of activists. I think one of the ways, even in my own case, is that a lot of international and foreign institutions became quickly interested in how the government, you know, was illegal detention that I was being held in and added their voices, also kind of put pressure on it. So those kind of interests and in put, putting activists in developing countries on different kinds of platforms and open, opening them up to global audiences can in the long run give them exposure that might protect their lives in dealing with repressive regimes and, and uh, you know, undemocratic governments as we're seeing in various African countries, including Ghana. Thank you so much, Oliver, for honoring our invitation and also sharing your thoughts on a wide range of issues confronting Ghana and Africa and the world at large. And Mr. Oliver, possibly um, I will drop an email right after for another Zoom link. Maybe we can have a brief discussion. And thank you so much uh, to our audience for joining us. Um, this is Dialogue for Africa, and I am your host, Musa Inua. And thank you. Have a great one. Bye.